questions, comments, anything at all so far? We're still on track. Sounds okay. Good you. We were yesterday. <laughs> well, thank you for coming back. Because I missed it. I had to go to Well, uh, so anything? Uh, again, we're still on track. Are we all right so far? Okay. All right. Okay. So, I just, you know, this may sound elementary to the officers. I'd like to talk about this, especially with advocates, but sometimes, you know, I had these moments where an advocate could come into my office and, and complain about one of my officers and I'd say, oh, okay, well, well, let's take a look at that. What, what do you think's going on? Well, you know, they did this, they did that. I said, well, uh, I, well, 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 I'll look at complaint. I'd be more happy to look into it. But let me ask you about you, how you see us. What do you think we do or what do you expect us to do? Or, you know, what, what's your expectations of us? And uh, they would tell me, and I said, well, let's do this. Why don't you, uh, let's schedule a ride along. See, let's see if you'll, I'll pick an officer. That's a pretty good PV officer. You ride along with See what you think. Just to watch it, you know, mechanically kind of do this work. And it never failed. You know, they come back and they say, oh my God, I had no idea. You know, I just had this TV image of cops. Most people, unless you actually work day in day out with police, you don't know that feeling, you know, you get when you're in a car and a radio call comes in and they say domestic, gun, knife, children, elderly, shots fired. I mean, it's different. And then your mind is moving. How do I get there? Do I have backup? Where do I park my car? Do I've been, been there before? What else do I need? Am I ready? But you can't say no, you gotta go. And then you, you make it to the house and let you in. You separate the parties. Maybe pat somebody down. They should have a gun or a knife. You separate the children. The children are crying. The mom said, don't do it. The partner's walk, talking with her. And another officer comes, they hold him and go outside on the front porch while you try to get it all worked out. You still haven't had it settled where you can start an interview. Then the kids are crying. They won't talk to you. Uh, and eventually, you know, they, they, everybody starts to calm down, takes a deep breath. And then the stories start. Um, you're trying to weigh it out. This is not easy. This is not easy. This is really complex. Um, and you gotta have a real strong character, I think, uh, to not only, you know, to do, do law enforcement, but think about this for a minute. How many people do you know that in their day-to-day -day work, they actually go into strangers' homes and ask them personal questions like, has your husband raped you? I mean, this is, this is really, really stressful, and it, you can't be shy at all when you do this work. You have to ask people things that you wouldn't normally ask people. That takes a real strong personality. That's why, you know, there's not a lot of people breaking down the doors getting policing, because you have to do some pretty interesting work. Whenever my advocates would come back after those ride-alongs, they would say, I have a new appreciation of this. Uh, now I understand why she said, when she complained about your officer, that the officer was rude. Yeah, go through somebody's purse, make sure they don't have a gun. You might think they're rude or say, ma'am, you have to sit right here while I talk to your husband. Please don't get up. I need you to sit right here, please. That may sound rude, but all that's necessary. Is it, is it not, does that make sense? This is necessary to do the work. Now, you know, rude police officers, that's something else. We, we don't want that to happen. But police officers are humans. They make mistakes. Well, that'll be fixed. But understanding this whole dance is uh, not easy. Uh, it's not easy to train it either, unless you ask me to do it. Um, that's why we, you know, our cabbie does role play. I've done tons and tons and tons and tons of role play. Not only my academy, but for years I, I did a lot of training in Shelby County, Memphis. And, you know, I love my Memphis cops, but man, I tell you, I broke up more fights between cops and Memphis and role play. I had to tell you, yeah, they got into it, you know. I said, wait a minute, <laughs> don't take a swing at somebody. We're both cops here. You're just playing a role, but you get into it. And, but you have to, but you got to dig deep to, to uh, understand that when you get on the scene, you got to control people. You got to make sure they're apart. You got to look for weapons. You got to moderate the move. You got to make sure if you're by yourself, you put people in a chair, you say, Ma'am, I know you don't want to do this, but I need you to have a seat right here. I just need to talk to your son for a minute. Please have a seat here. A lot of people don't like that. Um, 
You got to bring people's emotions down. This is this takes a skill, you know, bringing down people's emotion and bringing up the rationality is not something that you just normally do. This really takes talent um, and distracting people. I, my fortune was that I worked with some of the older officers that had this skill about them. I swear, I've never seen like a, the great gifts they gave me to show me how to be patient with people and just take your time, let them vent. And I had an older officer tell me one time, he said, if somebody just beat the hell out of you, wouldn't you want to scream and yell? I said, hell yeah. That's what you're watching here. Make sure you know that they're preventing, they're yelling and screaming. Um, they're letting you know for the first time that they're going to tell you what's going on. And then, you know, you look, I, I think this is uh, stereotyping, but there are, you know, there are people who express themselves differently. Now, I'm married an Italian. I don't know if you all know any Italians or not. These are the most expressive people on the planet. I mean, I've I, I, been in Italy many, many times, and I can tell you, just having a conversation with an Italian, they'll just let you know, let me tell you, they'll, if you were to sit on their hands, they all would, they would, how would they talk? They just, I mean, it's a beautiful thing to watch, but when they get excited and they get uh, the, the, the emotions up, they're going to let you know. That's not threatening. That's just how some people been. Um, and we've missed that for years. They say, well, look at her. She's all out of control. But come on, it's not out of control. That's somebody focused uh, telling you what's going on. So we have to understand that. Uh, you know, obviously, clear, calm, voice instructions. Look at the signs of physical, social, psychological signs. The knowledge of money, if there is any money. Uh, denial of civil rights. And then you hear this, I, I told her she couldn't go. And you, who? My wife, what? Well, go where? Her mother, mother hates me. He said, you know, okay, well, I'll, I'll buy it. Let's get a little deeper. What does your mother hate you about? I don't know, but she comes home in trouble. Her mother's a damn spoon. That's a, you know, she stirs things up. Yeah, it's no Tennessee singer. Um, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah, you got a spoon. Your mother loves a spoon. I got it. Um, <laughs> so, he said, well, okay, so you don't want her to see your own mom? No. By the way, it's interesting when you talk to undocumented immigrant women. Ask them the last time they talked to the mom. Huh? Got you trapped. Let you call your mother and brought them home. Ghana? Or any other foreign country. That's a, a dead giveaway there to me. So we'll hear it here, you know, her mother, right? So you, you told us, yeah, yeah. I sat her down in the chair and said, you can't go. So now you now you're admitted to assault and you physically restrain your wife. Well, yeah, that's my wife. So you hear the privilege come out. And, I, and this this isn't, I think, a controversial uh, thing to talk about. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know how y'all feel about this, but do, do y'all think male privilege is, is real? You know? What is male privilege to you? You think it's real? Yeah. Um, I think a lot of that with every solitary person, but there are certain people who feel they are entitled to be able to do whatever they want to when they want to. And that's what I see. Yeah. Having certain advantages in a lot of situations. Um, yeah, I think it's a real thing. I mean, all you have to do is ask all the former female presidents we've had. <laughs> I don't mean to get political, but I mean, you know, y'all see what happened this morning. New York City Police Commissioner, woman, Nassau County. Huh? This is a big deal, by the way, law enforcement. That was the big prize. That's the biggest. There's nothing bigger than the Commissioner of New York City Police. She was chief of detectives over in Nassau County. Top cop. Philadelphia, outlaw, chief outlaw. Seattle chief. This is big stuff. The, the old male privilege barrier in policing. I watched it when the when the black line broke. In other words, when they started hiring black officers. It was pretty interesting to watch. Then we started to see black state troopers. Then we started to see black captains. Then we had a black chief. And that and that happened just in the last 25 years. And I, I have memories of talking to the when I got on the 77, we had some 50s officers still on the department. Four of them were black. 
And they were all friends of mine. Jesse Patterson was one of them. And I asked Jesse, I said, now I can't even imagine a Southern Police Department with a black police officer in the 50s. I said, what happened? He said, Mark, he said, well, he couldn't believe it. They hired four of us, but there was no media there when they pinned us with a badge. They brought us to the chief's office and they gave us our gun, our badge. And the first thing the chief said was, we're glad you're here. We need you. I don't want to ever hear you wrestling a white man. Yeah, yeah, and it was pretty interesting. I said, damn, Jesse, I said, what did you do? He said, we just waited. When they started marching, when they started asking for rights, so did we. And before you knew it, we were locking up white people. And then I heard it, you know, year before last, Congress wouldn't give money to the Violence Against Women Act because they didn't want Indian police to arrest non-Indians. This happened in our lifetime, non-Indians, could not be arrested by the Indian police on reservations. 70% of crimes committed by non-Indians on reservations. What kind of craziness is that, right? That's a lot of privilege going on. That's, you know, that, so there's a lot of this swimming around, but with these cases, this is when you'll hear somebody say, rape your wife? How do you do that? He's like, well, like, I didn't quite get that. Are you saying you can't rape your wife? Well, no, that's my wife. I'm entitled to her. Yeah, look, I've heard this in other countries as well. Um, the Turkish police, I spent time with the Turkish police, the Cypriot police, they were real fascinated by this. So they're asking me, you mean you locked up men for raping their wives in the U.S.? I said, yeah. well, not as much as we think is going on, but yeah. It's, so it happens in male privilege. Um, so it's, I think it's that. Uh, and, It'll show itself sometimes. Now, this is the obvious, you know, with like injuries and scratch marks and bites and all that. That's pretty easy for us to figure out. And then we hear, you know, um, she started it. <laughs> what matters? Is it dominant? Who's in fear? Who's the most attentive aggressor? Um, but I think you heard Pat. Well, let's do him again. He's got some other suggestions for some policing. He's uh, helping us out. I told us, I said, you know what gets me mad. You know what I can take and what I can't take. You're responsible. You know what makes me angry. You know what gets me pissed off. You know how I'm going to react to it. I've told you. I've told you how I'm going to react to it. I told you, if you do this, if you say that, I'm going to get pissed off. You don't want to see me pissed off. And when she would do it, or she would say it, and I would break things, get her, yell at her. And then turn around and blame her. Get up. Come up with a guy named for you. Kids get. It's your fault. You knew what pushed you to do. Push me over the line. You did it. It's your own fault. You must have wanted it. So, so your mindset at the time was that she uh, deserved it by her actions. And so you felt justified. When, when did it cross the line or did it ever cross the line? So, you know, this guy, he's been through Batters intervention, so he's actually working with defenders. He still is today, but I kind of felt like old time kind of got into that a little bit. Y'all know what I'm saying? Yeah, he got a little animated, didn't he? I told you, I told you, you made me do this. Well, that's a famous statement from defenders. So, again, and this, I'm admitting this is not easy. We don't have ties at the scene. Ties not at the scene of crime, believe me. We're not gonna hear that. Um, we'll hear victims, you know, make excuses for ties, but not ties. He's not gonna show up. Um, so size, skills, who's afraid, location of injuries. But when, now we're battling traumatic brain injury. You know, I, and I didn't read the entire story. I just read the headlines about you know, traumatic brain injury that just did an autopsy on another NFL player like Hernandez. You, you West saw the Hernandez case, his brain was mush. This latest case, I'm not sure what his name is. I, I can look at the news story. It's killed six people. Uh, and I'm not excusing vile behavior on traumatic brain injury, but the researchers are telling us they suspect now that 80% of DV victims are exhibiting traumatic brain injury. Y'all heard this? Yeah, this is pretty shocking stuff. Now, most of us would think, well, okay, what's that got to do with the police part of this? 
Well, if you've got traumatic brain injury, you may not be able to comprehend what you're being asked or telling. This is another problem. Uh, the Ohio Domestic Violence Network has designed a, a protocol for advocates to determine traumatic brain injury. Santa Clara County, DV policy, they actually are writing police policies now. You should be aware of the possibility of traumatic brain injury, domestic violence cases. It's pretty interesting. Uh, you can't see it. You don't know until you start handling the victim. So asking the history of abuse, demeanor, alcohol, all of it is a witnesses, corroborating evidence. I mean, we're looking for a lot of stuff. If it's self-defense, self-defense, self-defense is a big one. And then the probable cause, you gotta have that. And, then not just injuries, there's more to this than injuries and letting someone else figure it out. I used to get this a lot. I don't get this much anymore. My officers do so. I don't know. I'll let the judge figure it out. Uh, the famous line, let the judge sort it out. It's like, what are you talking about? The judge is all in bed. <laughs> what judge is talking about? Some imaginary judge. There's no imaginary judge. Hell, you police officer. The judge will figure out what you give them. They're not going to come out here and work your case for you. It's going to work. <laughs> I see you shaking your head over there. You probably heard it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you got a big crystal ball up there behind me. <laughs> Unbelievable. What? So, again, I'm not asking to change your, your protocol. I, this is just all food for thought. But you know, we ask, don't move, don't rush, don't be be calm, slow it down. You don't know until you know. Uh, you, you'll start to see it the longer you're there. But we still don't know. She could be the offender. I'm I, I'm more politically statistically correct than politically correct. The numbers show something different. But there are male victims. But I think there's the reporting is low. Man, I, when you compare domestic violence reports of male victims. When you compare that to stalking victims, it's something interesting. We actually see more men report stalking. Did y'all notice that? Well, you're getting, it's an interesting thing. I think th there's a limit where some men will go to and they won't go further. They'll say, yes, she's following me. Yes, she's harassed me. Yes, she's threatening me. But they won't say, yes, she hit me. I believe survivors from a male feel a lot more shame. No, I, I think there's a lot of proof of that. I, you know, I've worked with officer victims, whether, again, the wives were of girlfriends were abusing. And boy, what a scary moment. I'm going to lose my job. I do. I need help. I don't want all the officers to know this. Because here's what some people are thinking. It's the same thing that female officers think when they report. If I report domestic violence, then the male officers I work with are going to ask me, Take care of yourself at home. And that's what they're thinking sometimes. You know, and then eventually it all works out. And they'll often say, we would never think that. You might have thought that. We're going to circle the wagons. Your, your family. Do you, you have some? That's also, I mean, as a police officer, you Um, I've also heard in the community general, I've come in there too, but I think there's a lot of community. Right? It's not military building. And you, you have to offer service to men. I mean, you take money, respect the feds. You have to. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you can't turn them in away. That won't work. That's not good. Um, my experience um, with males survives. Yeah. Um, there's an added threat that they're trying to report where female user uh, basically says, Well, if I try to report, I'll, I'll say they hear the ones being abusive. Um, because there's that statement that men can be having the abuse to say, Yeah, they, and by the way, this is where you, you need a really competent 
experienced officer to say, okay, I'm acknowledging right now that the law is gender blind, so let's just get that straight out of the way. Let's just let's dig into this and see what we've got. But uh, there are women who will do that. There are that they're there. We have to acknowledge that. That's true. And they'll use that. Well, look what he did to me. Men do it with men offenders do it with female victims, female offenders do it with male victims as well. Uh, it's not the biggest number, but they're there. And but that means we and we've got to be careful. Everybody's due process has is, is, is got to be oh, it's got to be help, you know, precious. That's if we deny someone their due process, we are in big trouble. Um, that's why I, you know, half my friends are defense lawyers. Uh, I, I believe in what they do. I've got a lot of friends in public defender's offices throughout the country, but it's just there. We can't have a free country without it. So, which means police have to explain to people I don't know who you are, I don't know what the circumstances are. We'll figure it out uh, and we'll be fair about it. So, knowing that. They can be manipulated by the female but up in there as well. It's very possible. Right? Uh, and then against self-defense issues, I, I like to put it this way, pretty simple. You know, if you're you got uh, you know threats of uh, dual arrest, if one person used violence, then you've got a single arrest. If more than one person used violence, you know, two people use violence, was one acting in self-defense, if that's true, you got a single arrest. If that's not true, then one person was most dominant or significant or primary aggressor, then you've got a single arrest. That's not true. If both people are equally aggressive, you got a dual arrest. But it's just you got to sort this out instead of, instead of taking it to the judge and saying, Judge, you figured out. That doesn't work, right? A good example would be a woman who was assaulted in the scene. This is Dyer County, Tennessee. I've done a lot of work in the It was over in Northwest Tennessee. About a real foot late by the Mississippi. Really good deputies, good, good agency. Um, I was in the training, the sheriff came in the training. He said, I got something for you. I'd like you to show this to other agencies. And I said, I thought it was going to be a big case, you know, a big top case. He said, I said, tell me about it, boss. He said, it's a bad arrest. I thought, really? And he said, my deputy's a good guy. He got on the scene by himself, girlfriend, boyfriend. He'd beaten her up in the past. And she said, uh, uh, or, or they got in an argument and she thought he was going to hit her, so she slapped him. Uh, he, he grabbed her, he choked her, drug her across the floor, he kicked her. A relative stopped the fight, a relative left. A deputy arrives. He separates the parties. He interviews her, and she says, I slapped him. And he interviewed him, he says, I don't know what I'd do either. So he arrested her and put her in a holding cell. Ten hours later, you start to see the injury develop. Circle under her jawline as a thumb, you know, the strongest appendage of your hand. What will happen often when you strangle somebody, your thumb digs deep. That's where you might you might see injury start to develop over time. But her body's discovered an injury. Now she's in she's in holding cell. That's been 10 hours. And she just got injuries everywhere across her body. Well, and she doesn't say anything, but they could hear her trying to breathe in the holding cell because her highway phone. There's a bone that looks like, I don't know, you've never seen a wishbone of chicken? It looks like a wishbone of chicken, but if you put it in your body, the back of your tongue sits on the top of it, and it's right at the top of your airway. But what he did, you see the thumbprint in her jawline, that means his hands were high on her neck. And when he did that, he snapped, instead of a trachea, he snapped the highway bone in her throat, and it cracked, and just one laid over the top of the other like that. She could get air in, but it was really difficult. So she was laboring for 10 hours trying to breathe. And the mother was dressing her to jail, found her out of jail, and said, What in God's name is all this? And she said, They arrested me because I slapped him. And so they immediately got her to the hospital and they actually her broke and they saw the broken bone in the throat. And one of her ribs was fractured where he kicked her side. They called the prosecutor, and the prosecutor said, Just drop all charges. And then they, uh, Put together a felony one for him. And I asked the sheriff, I said, Can you give me a diagnosis. He's your man. And he said, He's a good guy. He's just moving too fast. Move too fast. You know, he, he might have got a different answer if he just slowed down a little bit. Uh, but the moment he heard slap, boom, that was it. The cuffs went on. So that, and I said, Sheriff, I have to be honest with you, I've seen these cases in my jurisdiction. Right? So understanding, you know, uh, patience. 
It's got to be part of part of your work. If the case is turns into a dual arrest, and the judge said it, the negative consequences could be they don't get prosecuted. They just don't. They dismiss. The defendant gains power. The victim loses, you know, the, the sense of security. They're frightened by the arrest. They didn't call it in. They have history. You might get sued. This could happen with false arrest. The positive impact of doing it right, obviously, right, is that the children stay with the non-offending parent. You remove the bad guy or bad woman from the scene. The victims aren't re-victimized. Really you get your level of lawsuits. So this, this is, a, uh, again, a kind of ongoing problem that you've had with dominant predominant primary aggressor. I'm saying that you have. Okay. And then the other thing, too, is are we really investigating the power of the quote? I mean, you all know what this is. You've seen it before, right? You, you know, is this starting to look familiar to you? Oh, wait, what is it? It's what? The Minnesota Power Control. Yeah, it's a Duluth bill that you already know where it's from. So, how many advocates are here again? Okay. Do you all use this? You do. Oh, so you do it with police as well? Yeah. But you show that. You show it to victims. It's included a It's different things. Why do you why do you need to show them they know? They don't know. How could you not know somebody's abusing you? It's morning, it's the afternoon, it's it's their their normal routine. They probably aren't aware. You know, they expect it. They know if they don't have dinner on the table at a certain time, certain things are gonna happen. Yeah. See, this is the outside this room. We got it, but outside this room, this is a is an interesting dilemma because you're telling me that you have to show a crime victim a diagram of their crime. Really, kind of what it is. We don't have to do this with a carjacking victim. You pull up on a carjacking and say, sir, what's going on? Could you imagine us? Here, here we are, we respond to a guy got robbed and carjacked, and we arrive on the scene, and we say, sir, the dispatcher said you were carjacked. Before we get into the statement, I brought what's called a photograph of what's called a handgun. Now, that's the... <laughs> That's the muzzle. That's the trigger. And the and the carjacker victim would say, Are you out of your damn mind? I don't know what a gun looks like, man. He bought me. So what are you talking about? We don't need to do that. But with this crime victim, we have to show them a diagram. Some victims just don't understand it. And when you tell people that, they go, That's not true. How the hell could you not know this was going on to you? Like it's just crazy. So, you know, and this then they say, Well, why didn't you stay? You know, we'll hear that too. Because leaving, you know, it's not an event, that's a process, as I said earlier. So when we saw this at policing, I admit we first put that, we thought, oh. And matter of fact, the advocate brought it into the academy class. I was in the class when they did do it in service. This was in the 80s, and she bless her heart, she was Sheldon director. She put this up on the wall, and some older officer said, Oh, we heard you were coming. <laughs> You're the ugly, touchy, feely lady. You want the outcome sing kumbaya and lock arms, and, you know. And, <laughs> and she said, no, 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 that's not what I'm showing you. I'm showing you something different. This is a real thing. This is the motive, the method, the tactics of a criminal who will use the same thing on you. 
If they'll use the kids on the victim, they'll use the kids on you. If they'll intimidate you, they'll intimidate her. If they'll isolate her, they'll isolate you. So when you investigate, this is what she said. When you investigate a call, all you've got to do is to watch him how they treat you. If they chase you around, threaten you, you're on the right track, man. That's what they do to her. They work with one, bite on another, right? This is just, it works that way. So we finally, like, you know, we finally got into our, Got thick heads. Please have thick heads. My head's thick. We finally got in there, you know, and then we thought, wait a minute, let's take it another level. So if we think that's true, that all these things are the tactics of an offender, then let's just take everything we put people in jail for. Every crime if we we go out and we enforce, it's got to have a corresponding sort of behavior, and it usually is on that power control wheel. And so everything you see in the spiral control wheel. This this equals very often a criminal charge. That's another way of looking at Ellen Pence's power control wheel. This works too, by the way. Because you start you start working this wheel a little bit, and you don't hear it. Child neglect, child abuse, custodial interference, you know, sex assault. You can't rape your wife. That's failed. Economics, running up her credit card, ruining her credit, elder abuse cases. Let me tell you. The big one, and not the only thing, but the big one, the elder abuse cases, a lot of you all work these. You, you start working them, you go, my God, he's drained her money. She has no 401k anymore. He, he, we had a bank calls one time. This is the saddest damn story. I, I, they call us, they said, we got blood all over a check. We just need you to send somebody out here. And when you hear that, you think, what the hell? That got through everything. We kind of figured what we'd be looking at. So the, we sent the detective out, and they had several checks with blood. From an older woman and her son, what he was doing, he was giving her a check and he was standing over. She's a caretaker, and he was making her fill out a check. And when she didn't write it big enough, he'd blouse her one. He'd bleed out, and he wouldn't even clean the check up. Blood all over checks. So we got, we go immediately to the house. We make the case on this guy. He was taking all her money, and it's an easy thing to do if you hold somebody's heart medicine. <laughs> Think about that for a bit. You know, you can't. A fried egg in the middle of the night, you can't walk. So here's what you're gonna do. I'll feed you. Where's my money? So now you get into financial exploitation, it's a it becomes a real complex call for your detectives. Now you got bank examiners and grand jury subpoenas. It gets difficult, but it's it's a major, major, major crime, right? So economic abuse. So when we got you go around the wheel, you see it by the way, the Wisconsin police. Uh, we've shown this several times in Wisconsin. Also, Wisconsin just took our example and they took the criminal code from Wisconsin and actually put it inside the power patrol wheel. So they hand this out to their officers in the field. So when they get these things, they know what the possibilities of charge. It's just another way of, you know, I thought it was pretty clever. And there you go. In context, you know, we can talk a little bit about this. What's the intent? What's the meaning of it? What are we hoping to get out of it? Um, how do they react to it? How much coercion? How much intimidation? But you've got to look at the context. It's just critical. And then the minimizing. This is evidence. Victim minimizing is evidence. Offender minimizing is evidence as well. I think Ty said this on the other seat. Well, I think you've got something to say about minimizing this. But she had me too. Didn't arrest you. They didn't arrest her. No. Yeah, well, what reasons could they give for not arresting? To say they calm down, or they, they didn't give any reasons for not arresting me. But what they did is they came in and uh, it was like they wanted to repair the family. And I think that you know it's an understandable response. I mean, you know, we believe in the sanctity of the of the family, believe in the privacy of the home. I think that they also believe that there should be a certain amount of privacy in the home. They didn't really want to interfere. Family and barrels, but so they wanted to fix it. They wanted her little boy to come out of the corner. They wanted her and I to kiss and make up. Also cleaned up. So when they came and you were all calm, was that a strategy on your part that uh, when I'm calm and show them that uh, this is a mark?
working in the jail, I could keep out of jail and to convince them that it was uh, that it was her that was crazy, that it was her that uh, was really the wild. So it was her fault for what had gone on. Do you think you were able to convince them? I mean, obviously they didn't arrest her, but arrest you. Do, do you think that uh, you were successful in convincing them? She were a man, the police officers were male. Yeah, I think some of the issues that I brought up to him touched home. Perhaps in their own relationships and just being male also. Yeah, I mean, I think that I did convince them that, uh, that Chris was to blame, or at least partly to blame. So they, they weren't going to arrest me. They, you know, they wanted me to just calm down. But they wanted I was already you know, in that process. They, they said, you're not going to do this again. I mean, you're not going to break things. You're not going to hurt her. You know, we need your word on this time. And I would tell them, hey, I'm not going to do this. In fact, you know, what you need to do is you need to talk to her. You need to tell her to leave me alone. You need to tell her to keep her mouth shut. Yeah, there you go. You tell her to quit starting this. So he, 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 he starts confessing, but he gets right back in it real quick. It's really interesting. And this guy's done. He's gone through the Patterson invention. He's making some assumptions, too, about the police, but I don't think it's right. He said, you know, that they just they were honored to say for their family. I, I've never had that conversation with the police officer. We're looking for criminals, right? That family sanctions, not something I've ever heard. But anyway, I mean, he's confessing basically what he did. He got calm. He minimized himself, basically. That's what you saw in the Petito case. And you told this guy got small. He has to be sick down. I, I, you know, body language is really interesting. I've seen a lot of this before. Actually, turning your body into something that's not, throwing your hands up, getting meat, getting small, talking low, green, apologizing. This is an interesting process for these offenders. They'll, they'll get non threatening really quick, but they'll, they can switch it on to something else as quick as well. And, and again, that's the, the dangers of these calls. So, so, that's what you got to say. Tell me about the first time you were arrested. Yeah, there we go. It's just like, it was like the third time they came out. They told me to leave. I mean, it was like first they were trying to repair the relationship and be a mediator between her and I and fix things up. And the third time, they just wanted to separate us. They wanted to keep her safe. And, um, they wanted to keep me and folks from doing something stupid and having to arrest me. Yeah, they, they still didn't want to arrest me. You know, I think they were still focusing on her personality and the way she was coming on. Swearing, being obnoxious, or being disrespectful, respectful to them. But they told me to leave. I left. But I, I gave them an argument. It's like, hey, now why should I have to leave? I mean, she's to blame here, too. Yeah, I broke this stuff. Yeah, I did this. But come on, you know. I love her, too. This is my house, too. This is my stuff, too. I want to sleep in my own bed tonight. Now, why would I have to leave? You make her leave. What are you putting all the blame on me for? You know, and it was almost like they were thinking about it, but you know, it's the third time they come. I had to go. So I left. I came back. Locked. I was going to go back to the house. So I would go to bed. My house too. They were waiting for me. This happened before when people. Drove around the block as well when you see me. They came up and uh, they said, What did I tell him? And what did I tell him, Mr. Schroyer? I told him we were going to have to arrest you if you came back here tonight. We told you to go home or go somewhere else, um, sleep it off, get a good night's sleep, and uh, try to resolve this in the morning. Here you are back. I guess we have to arrest. And I think at that point, I still might have been able to talk my way out of them uh, arresting me. I think I could have, but I didn't. Instead, I got mad. And again, when I'm in this argument about this is my house too, this isn't fair. Why don't you arrest her? Why don't you take her? I just became disrespectful to basically. They arrested me. And I, and I, to this day, I think that's why I was arrested because I was disrespectful to that, because I was found to them. And then you went into the court system and you were. So, yeah, 
It's interesting. <laughs> so the cops arrested for disrespecting the police. There's no such crime as that. Uh, but you know, he he came back. You know, and they and they and they caught him. Um, so, but again, he's making confessions here, right? About who these offenders are, and, and you notice how quick he was to tell them that they should arrest her. This is a common tactic as well. And this works when you get an inexperienced officer who has not been trained correctly or has a, a solid, mature, experienced officer that helps you work your way into your experience. Now, this was a big mistake. I think it's a big mistake as giving a statement. Not that junior officers are bad. God bless them, we need thousands of them. But to bring that junior officer into a mature position where they can interview people like this and not be tricked by somebody like this, it takes time, so that means mentoring young officers into the into the you know uh, a different phase in their career. It's kind of like uh, taking a junior prosecutor and throwing a domestic violence docket on. It, this is a common thing too. You got experienced officers standing in line in the courtroom ready to give the case to a prosecutor, and they say, "Well, I just started here about a month ago, and the DA decided that I should start off with these kind of cases." You think, "Oh my God, really?" Some of those dangerous, violent offenders in society, and they give it. I'm sorry, I kind of get carried away by this, but I think it's just it's a bad habit. Have you ever seen this before? It's a it's crazy. It doesn't make any sense. Could you imagine giving a, a, a junior prosecutor a major homicide case? Well, they laugh you out of the courtroom, right? But they do it with these kind of cases. It's just really kind of dangerous, right? And then minimizing by the court. We we've seen this. This happens. Uh, but I'll tell you, some of the judges I've seen around the country, they're breaking this man, Judge Ron Adrian over in Cleveland. Good friend of mine. We trained together, actually. An incredible uh, judge on this issue. Here's what he said about DB. In a courtroom setting. A victim of many instances that might, whether the defendant said anything or not, still be intimidated and be afraid to say anything other than, you know, I just wanted to go away. In which like emotional state that can be admitted as evidence? I'm sorry, getting over this, okay? It doesn't matter if you can, okay? It still happens. The more evidence that you can put in front of the court, the more that you can allow the court to see what you see. Lady did not wish to prosecute at the scene and the detective signed the complaint. I did. The more likely it is that the emphasis is going to be removed from just the statements of the victim. And it's going to focus on the totality of the circumstances that surround the event. Space Boss is sitting in Cleveland. So, Judge Adrian, he trains his judges around the country now. Really great, great instructor. And he's been there, done that. Now, just to kind of recap, you know, fear, what is it? What does it look like? Is it report? Do we document it correctly? We know what fear is. You know, we weren't going to work every day. Body language, I talked about this quite a bit. Matter of fact, you know, again, as, as I said this morning, they, I watched my young officers and, and they would make these mistakes by showing body language that was scary to people. And I, I had to bring it to their attention. And I and I think sometimes living with an offender, really one of the great gifts my stepfather gave me was the ability to see what was about to happen. Because I could hear him walking hard. I knew what he was saying, what it meant. I got it all worked out. I knew somebody was busy to help me that. I watched him break my brother's nose twice because he didn't comb his hair break. I, he beat my mother into two miscarriages. I mean, you go through this and you really get good at reading body language. And I, you know, I had train officers when I got on the police department say, uh, so when you write a traffic ticket, beware of this and that. I said, yeah, I've seen that before. Really? Uh, and I said, well, how do you know? Well, just believe me, I know what it's like when somebody's about to sucker punch you because I've been there, right? So if you know, if you're aware of body language, then that means you survive by it. If I'm surviving by body language, and all of a sudden I've got an officer who come into my house and saying, what happened? And, and you start telling them, and this starts, you know, look, police officers sleep with their arms crossed. 
No, we do. It's a weird thing. You know, you got your arms crossed, you look at your watch, you turn up your walkie-talkie, you, you're looking around for other suspects while they're telling the story, you interrupt and say, I'll get you protective order information later. You're by yourself, where's your husband? Your feet start to hurt, so you start that police rock and you're massaging your feet. All that looks like you don't want to be there. This victim will often say, you know what? I think we're done. I'm sorry. I, uh, I, I'll, I'll, I'll be all right. Or the worst case scenario, this gets worse when you got an officer that's just doing it, doing it, doing it. Nobody stops them. So what happens? The advocates know. And the advocates know what shift they were. Your local domestic violence advocates know who's on each shift. I'm telling you, this, I've had long conversations, and you'll hear a victim walk into shelter and they say, I'd like for you to help me. I get. I need a police report, and I, and I want. I want to get a protective order. And the advocates at some jurisdictions will say, "Well, they're, the day shift is still on. Let's wait till the evening shift checks in." And it sounds crazy, and then you find out they're cop shopping. And here's what you'll hear. Have a side officer. I'm sorry, I don't have much to say other than I don't know what's going on. If you can figure this out, would you please let me know? Uh, so this is a smart offender who's playing that frustration because they put you out that door real quick. And this is a pretty smart move. These people aren't stupid. Uh, they're, they're far from it, actually. And the more the police, you heard what Ty said. I mean, he's admitting he's already analyzed the police. He thinks he, he knows everything. He doesn't know everything. But he's got a pretty good idea of why they did this, why they did that. So they mean they're studying the police. They study the police carefully, right? We also want to look at history and protective orders, 911 calls, and cited utterances. They can blurt it out, scream, yell. Neighbors, if they'll talk to you. If they don't, there may be a reason. Neighbor killed protecting their neighbor. Yeah, we've had these cases. Uh, bystanders being killed. Uh, fathers being killed, trying to protect their daughter. This, again, is so dangerous and deadly. Uh, this happens on occasion. Uh, yelling, screaming, shouting, 911 calls that are intimidating, still admissible hearsay. Uh, Davis versus Washington, one of the great gifts Ginsburg gave us. She had a case where a 911 call came in on a domestic and, and, and it was used, right? It's evidence. And, Defendant said that it was testimonial. It was. Uh, it shouldn't have been admitted without, uh, without, the, without him testifying. It was him on the phone. It went all the way to Supreme Court, and then Judge Ginsburg said, "Wait a minute." He said, "Now the 911 call is not testimonial. 911 call is for the safe response of police officers to a violent call, violent crime. That information dispatcher is asking the, the, the caller is about the officer's safety as much as his victim's safety." So that's admissible. So 911 calls can be brought in as it is hearsay evidence. And, you know, conversations between paramedics and victims can be brought in. They're not subject to the same uh, evidence issues as we are. The police have a different dog in the hunt. So we start interviewing somebody that courts say, well, stop, that's it, that's testimonial. You want to introduce that evidence, you've got to have, you know, they've got to get on the stand and testify to that. They don't have to testify against themselves, which means you can't introduce those kind of pieces of evidence but if you got a victim talking to a paramedic in the back of the ambulance he said yeah he strangled me he raped me he did this paramedics gonna write that in their crib sheet then the paramedic can testify that's acceptable hearsay they can come into court that's different that's why I, one of the reasons I, I recommend the police you got to get paramedics to the scene safety of a victim but you want to enhance your case now, and I don't know about you all but I've watched paramedics testify and there's something about paramedics I don't know where it is I suspect that it's because they can pronounce really big words and they can spell them. I mean, these are, hell, these are nurses. I mean, these are rolling nurses. And 
when you see them on the stand, it's like, yeah, you know, it's like having a doctor on the stand, it's like, damn, that's pretty interesting. And they are very believable because they're honest, obviously. And they're not that lock anybody up. So having that statement is really nice, really critical for your case. And then obviously the crime scene, which I think is your victim, your biggest crime scene, and then injuries. And then always, so the injuries lead me to this. This is the Ohio Domestic Violence Network. Go to their website, download the traumatic brain injury information. Uh, the athletes now are being trained in it. Next year, they're planning to roll out training for Ohio police officers. Because there's things about traumatic brain injury, unless you're trained in it, you might not realize. Uh, but you might have a victim just looking at you like they don't know what you're talking about. That could be a sign of traumatic brain injury. They just can't comprehend. You know, doctors for years have told us that one punch is not necessarily the, the worst, the second, third, and fourth, the more you start pounding away on somebody's head. And it makes sense because when you look at NFL players, I mean, it's years and years and years and years. I played high school football for four years, and I'm sure some of you all did too. And you remember when you were playing football years ago, here's what the coaches said, use your head. They did. Use your head, use your head, use your helmet. And we were, look, I don't, who knows who I would have been if I didn't play football. I might have been <laughs> somebody different, you know, maybe a doctor or a lawyer. You never know. <laughs> I mean, who knows? But if you talk to a parent today about this and say, is your, is your 16 year old son, they're going to play football? Ask any NFL football player about their kids playing football. Y'all heard these stories? No, they can play baseball, they can play basketball, they're not going to play football. And it's because of traumatic brain injury. So the things that you'll read in this in this uh, diagram carefully talks about you know, pupils being different sizes, loss of consciousness. Some of the same kind of stuff you see with strangulation, you may see traumatic brain injury. So, and by the way, if you want this PowerPoint, obviously, uh, just being, you'll, you'll send it out. Yeah. And you'll send it out to everybody after them. So uh, it's, it's important to know things about traumatic brain injury. Now, again, we talked about power and control wheel, documenting manipulation of police. I think it's critical as well. They intimidate the victim, they intimidate the officer. And when you want to see what it looks like, it, this is the interesting. This guy's intimidating the officer. Now, this is a single deputy, very often, the further west you go, you get over in West Virginia, I've done a lot of training over there, and I mean, and y'all know this West Virginia is not as populous as Virginia. There's some, there's some small communities in this state, but you get over there and you're talking one officer on duty, that's it. So they, they, they've got no backup. So their answer called by themselves. This is that kind of case. But the deputy, you know, when you come to cops and police different, Country cops aren't uh, as heavy handed when they police. They're not, they're not forceful and up front. They, they have a pace about. Uh, I've got two nephews that are country cops, and it's a slow kind of pace. It looks like you're not there, but you're way ahead of the suspect because you start aggravating things, and you may have to fight your way out somewhere. If you get my meaning, that's what's going on here. He's talking to this guy, and this guy's charging. And most people think, stop him. What is he doing? He sorts it out. But it's all being filmed by the wife. This is what's interesting in this case. Stay down. Come on, now. I was your friend all until now. 
No, I want to record this because I just want you to know what I've been putting up with. Attitude I've been putting up with. <laughs> I know, but you know what, Dan? You deserved it because you were chasing him around. So, absolutely appropriate use of the taser, no doubt about it. But he told him not to get up. What did he misunderstand there? Uh, but the wife, you know, I just want to see what I've been put up with. What a woman. Like, what a dangerous moment for her, by the way. She's documenting this. She said, well, here's what he does to me. He's doing it to you, you know. And that's very true. This is what they do. Again, documenting that behavior, isolating the officer. He's not going to go away tonight. They won't open the door. They call the dispatch. They call in. They won't answer the phone. You call your partner over. So I don't know what it is. If you service, they won't let me in. You knock, you knock, you knock, you knock. Right, they open the door. You say, sir, what's going on? We didn't call you. Wham, they slam the door in your face. You think, okay, we got to figure this out. So then you call your sergeant, get permission to use the universal key. Home <laughs> Depot loves the police. <laughs> Yeah, because you're behind your door. <laughs> but you, this is getting, I mean, and, you know, forget that, right? This is, uh, you, you know, right to your privacy, you know, doesn't trump somebody's right to life. That's for sure. So you get the door in. About 30, 45 minutes, you get inside. Everything looks fine. You think, well, uh-oh, we're getting the wrong house, right? And what you found out is the reason you were not let in to begin with, they didn't have the story right yet. This is isolating you for a particular reason. Let me fix it. We've seen this outside courtrooms, by the way. You, you sit outside courtrooms and you hear, you're going to tell that prosecutor you're going to drop charges today. So they fix it before they walk in, or they'll do it in the courtroom. See that as well. Uh, so isolating the victim is really smart. You talk to any, I, I guarantee you, if we fill this room with emergency nurses and said, tell us your experience of treating domestic violence victims. What's your biggest problem? You know what they'll say? We cannot treat the victim because the offender won't leave the exam. She's my wife and I want to be here. Right. So what the hospitals do? They come up with a sneaky blank and they'll say, sir, you can stay in the room. We'll be back in a minute. We have to go do a little quick test, but we'll be back. They just walk in the next exam room and they give her a sheet and they say, how long are we going to be here? And that's when you get the call, right? Emergency room call. And they're separated when you get there. Or, right? She's checked in the hospital under some other name. Hospitals do that all the time. We've had a lot of murders in hospitals. Uh, offenders going into hospitals and murdering people. Yeah, it happens. Right? So, um, financial, uh, not only financial, but actually sending signals to the victim while the police are on the scene. This woman talks about her experience. And I promise I would never call the police again. Like, swear, you know, he didn't trust me. So then to have police come, he was shocked. And my ex like stood back into the hallway so that you couldn't see him from the front door. And he was like, Chip, and all of that. And I was really scared because he's completely capable of doing that. The officer thinks she's refusing my help or that she's not taking the course of action that we think is the most appropriate. Think again. Because it may not be the most appropriate for her, and statistically, arresting him is no guarantee that she will survive. Issuing an order of protection is no guarantee that she will survive. Yeah, but that's Neil Webster. He is a world-renowned authority on homicide, domestic homicide. He's written volumes on this. He runs the National Fatality Review Project at Northern Arizona University. He has studied domestic murder for probably 35 years. He's he spent two years just traveling in rural Kentucky looking at domestic homicide in rural settings. This guy is, there's nobody better than him. And when he says, you know, there's no guarantee, you take that to the bank. And, and by the way, victims will say that too. You keep telling me, you know, protection, I'll be saying, 
What's that going to do? You're going to be here with me? You can stay here with me? This is when we have to be ready for that. Explain to them how to be safe. Economic abuse. This is when you start spending all of it with money. See this very often. Uh, running on credit card debt. So running your credit. Mail clippers. We've already talked about this. This is the, it's my right. I can do it. And then threats. Smart offenders have told us for years best way to control you is just to piss you off. It's just a truth to this. You know, smart criminals know this. He baits you. He baits you into doing something. This is an easy trick to fall into as well because, you know, I said this yesterday. I, I think one day we're going to be able to, to look deeper into the minds of a police officer. And when we do, there's going to be this software program in there tucked away. And I call it the witty comeback program. <laughs> because <laughs> what happens when somebody baits you? Oh, I have no bad. You work for me. Yeah. Here, here we go. Oh, really? You're right. You know, I do work for you. I don't know what I'm thinking, sir. You are the taxpayer. Let me just tell you, I calculated exactly what you paid me last year, and it's four cents. Here's your money back. Now, there's an eight-hour complaint with this argument. I just gave money to a side effect for the state, right? So, who's, you know, who's pulling who? So, um, don't fall for the old threat tricks. And what, here's what's open, too. Is they'll make you second guess yourself. They love to do this. But this is they're really good at this. Let me tell you something, officer. Da 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 da. You better look at that. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. So when you get a director, I like those directors, right? Says I appreciate your advice, sir. But I've been doing this a while. Well, so just sit back and relax. It'll be a week before you know it. And then minimizing denying, blaming. This is standard. It's gone on forever. It should be recorded as well. And then use the children. We talked about a little later. Um, Vanderbilt football coach uh, abused his wife. Ex Philadelphia football player. Vanderbilt's a pretty big school. It's kind of an Ivy League hillbilly school. Um, he had a lot of money to get there. It's, he, they paid these folks a lot of money, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to coach their team. and. So this guy was no, you know, uh, second stringer. He was pretty big deal, but he was married. He had 12 children. They had been married 13 years. That's the first signal, right? Something's not right. Family calls us from New Jersey, says you got a helper, she's in trouble, she's got a black eye, he's beating her up. I sent two of my detectives out. They get out there, seven, I think seven of the kids are there, and all seven had almost robotically the same statement. Everything was okay. She walked into something, she failed. Everything was okay. They came back and said, Lieutenant, we don't have much here. She saw the black eye, but that's, they've all recovering, evidently. Called her brother back in New Jersey, and I said, we got a problem, can you help me anymore? He gave me the name of a doctor in Nashville. He said, just go to her doctor, she'll tell you everything. I said, doctor, don't talk to the police. He said, just call her. And I did. I said, and I said, ma'am, I said, you're this woman's doctor. I, I'm not asking you to do anything at all. I just want you to listen. I said, I, 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 let me tell you who I am and what we've seen so far. And she's your patient and she's in danger and I need your help. Can you get her in this office? Can you get her in? Can you convince her to come in? And she said, thank you. She hung the phone up. The next day, she came in the office with her, with the coach's wife. Big black guy, but the doctor brought her file. She got a permission to give her medical body. It was this thick. We charged him. Uh, Vanderbilt hired him a big dream team lawyer. We got in court. She testified for him. The judge of the case stopped her testimony and said, you're telling me today that officers are fabricating a police report that they lied when they said you were assaulted? And he said, that's not, that's not happening here. He said, these officers aren't liars. He said, he, he said to her, these are domestic violence officers. They don't have time to falsify reports. They're very busy, what they do. See, that's not possible. He said, the problem here, ma'am, is that you just perjured yourself in my courtroom, but I'm not gonna charge you because I know why you're doing it, because you're looking at your husband who you're afraid of in this courtroom. He said, that behavior, this is what the judge said, this is all according to the news report, said that your behavior validates the suspicions of the officer because he's trying to control you right here in the courtroom. So you are a victim of domestic violence. We can make it. 
They convicted. But it, you know, it was pretty amazing when you had seven children. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. So there you go. So that's a that's a quick sort of walkthrough. I, I get a lot of this you already know. Uh, I like, you know, when we get mixed crowd, probation, advocates, police, same room, we kind of go through the sort of the shopping list, you know, of what we need to do on these calls so we can prevent the you know, bad arrest. If it ever happens, maybe it never has. It's possible. Now, so I think we're about time for a break. Let's take because I want to, and I don't want to give you heartburn, okay? But I'm going to show you some stuff in the next hour that, well, don't be afraid of what you're about to see, okay? Uh, okay. I'll explain it when you see it, uh, and it's not that bad. So we'll, we'll process it and talk about it. We're going to talk about police being sued. Yeah, uh, we don't talk about it much, but I, I want to share some of the stuff with you that I've learned over the years. So let's take 10 minutes, start back. One more hour. 